invite you to turn with me, again reminding us that our place in Daniel that we have jumped off from, as it were, uh, is Daniel 10.13 concerning this battle, this spiritual battle between Michael and Gabriel with the king, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, all of these being, again, spiritual entities, a war, a battle in the spiritual realm. And we've uh, begun looking at this spiritual battle uh, as to who the spiritual enemy is, as to the temptations that the enemy brings against us, and then now we're focused upon the resources the resources that the Lord has given to us in order to overcome that enemy, that great enemy of our soul, Satan, and all his demonic forces. But there's no doubt uh, uh, in the future as to whether or not we will be victorious because our Savior has already been victorious. We are united to him. We need not fear we need not be concerned that, that we will persevere uh, because we will persevere who are united to Christ by faith. And the Lord will cause us to persevere. Every child of God will through faith, without exception, overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. In 1 John 4.4, 4, we read, ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, that is, overcome the evil spirits that mislead by way of false prophets. You've overcome them already. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Likewise, in the same epistle of John, in 1 John 5, we read in verse 18, for whatsoever, in verse 4 and 18, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. That is our faith in Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, that is, does not continue in unrepentant sin. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. There is a seed which God has implanted within the child of God, his seed. And that keeps us. That seed of God protects us. It keeps us ever to be his. And then John says, and that wicked one, namely the devil, Toucheth him not, that is born of God, toucheth him not fatally, does not touch him with a deathly blow. Certainly we are tempted, we are tried by the enemy, but we are not touched with any kind of, of fatal blow by the enemy. We are protected as God's people. You see, as we pass through this life, there's a, a kind of back a back-to-the-future approach. We look back to 
what Christ has accomplished for us, right? By faith. We look back to the fact that Jesus, upon the cross and through his resurrection, overcame the, the enemy for us in Colossians 2.15, where it says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. But we're not only looking back to what Christ has done, we also look forward to the future in hope of our own victory. And so we always look back to look forward in hope. Back in faith, forward in hope. That's how we, again, overcome the enemy. A back to the future approach. Now, I dare say that being spiritually armed for battle is even more important than being physically armed for battle against enemies that we can see with our natural eyes. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, there was a battle between the enemies of Israel who came against Israel under the reign of King Jehoshaphat. And it shows again the might and the power of these spiritual weapons that God gives to even overcoming the physical enemies of this world. Not necessarily, not that it's wrong to use physical arms to defend ourselves, we are granted that right to do so by, by way of self-defense. But it's even more important that we be spiritually armed because they overcame their enemies who far outnumbered all of Judah and Jehoshaphat the king. They overcame their enemies by singing praises to God. That God caused all of the, the enemy that came against them to be divided against one another. He caused them to have such conflicts among themselves that they ended up destroying themselves. And that, again, is what God is able to do with all of the enemies we face today in this world, in high places. God is able to turn them against themselves and to divide them in such a way that they destroy themselves. And so let us always remember the most important way that we arm ourselves is to spiritually arm ourselves. And as we consider the spiritual armor and spiritual weapons that the Lord Jesus has already purchased for us, this is not something that we have to wait to receive at some point in our Christian life, we have already been given the spiritual uh, armor and the spiritual weapons are already ours in Jesus Christ by virtue of what he has won for us. This is our inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a part of what he has given to us as the children of the living God. The spiritual armor, the spiritual weapons are ours. And so he calls us to use them. 
to take them up through the Apostle Paul in the text that is before us, even in Ephesians 6, verse 14, which says, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And so we're going to look at these two pieces of armor that are found in this verse, verse 14. First of all, the belt of truth, and second, the breastplate of righteousness this Lord's Day. We'll continue to work our way through each of these pieces of armor as we progress over the next few weeks. So first of all, the belt of truth. Just by way quickly of review from the sermon last Lord's Day, I want to just highlight in verses 10 through 13 of Ephesians 6, these, these uh, points just to keep in our mind for us to remember. First point is that we are called to stand and to resist the enemy. In verses 11 and 13, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. In other words, the apostle reminds us, don't be apathetic, don't be indifferent about this battle. Uh, this is a battle that is to be taken seriously. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a command. Uh, that's not something for us to, uh, to simply take as a suggestion, as an option. No, we are to, to resist, withstand the enemy. And so this, again, we see to resist and to oppose the enemy by clinging to our inheritance in Christ and putting on the whole armor of God. A second point to remember from the sermon last Lord's Day is this, that this enemy is spiritual, not flesh and blood, not some enemy that we can see with our natural eyes in verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so because the enemy is not an enemy that we can see, we especially need to be spiritually ready at all times, not lazy, but ready. Watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation as the devil did overcome the disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and particularly Peter. Watch and pray, the Lord Jesus says, because this enemy comes, and we can't see that enemy. Thirdly, from last Lord's Day, put on the whole armor of God. Don't put a, a little bit here and a little bit there, one piece of the armor, but put on the whole armor of God. In Ephesians 11, 6.11 and 6.13, put on the whole armor of God. And then in verse 13, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. 
That is, male and female, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, minister and member, all are alike to put on the whole armor of God. doesn't matter how young you are here as you hear God's word preached, how old you are. God calls you, each one, to put on the whole armor of God. These are the orders from our glorious king, our captain, that leads us forth in battle, put on the whole armor of God. And then, finally, one last point from last Lord's Day sermon. This battle must be fought, not in our own strength, but in Christ's power, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not in the power of our own might. You see, this, this battle that we wage is not by way of our own mere efforts. It's the victory and it's the power that, of Christ. It's the victory that he has already won. And we go forth and we claim by faith as we fight against the enemy. We are walking in his footsteps. We are armed with armor that he has given to us. It is his spirit that lives and abides within us that gives us the strength to stand against the enemy. And Jesus has already won the victory. It is his strength. You know, we could fight with every degree of effort and with all of our might from now until the day that we die and accomplish absolutely nothing. Nothing. If we are not strong in the power of his might. So we're simply fighting in the power of our own might, but not leaning upon him, not trusting in him. All of our fighting will be basically worthless. As we look at our text today, remember again, as was noted last the Lord's Day, Paul was imprisoned in a Roman jail at this time as he wrote this letter and he likely had an armed Roman soldier whether in the cell with him or just outside the cell that he could observe by way of how this Roman soldier was armed and he could observe the armor and the various parts of the armor and the Apostle Paul takes what he observes as he looks at this Roman soldier, and the Lord gives him, by way of inspiration, a, a, an analogy to the spiritual armor that we must have if we are to battle against the enemy of our souls. Let me note before we begin to delve specifically into the, the belt of truth, let me just make a couple observations, and then we'll look more closely at the belt of truth. The first observation is this. Most of the armor that Paul identifies here in Ephesians chapter 6 is defensive in nature rather than offensive. The one offensive weapon that Paul mentions, which we'll get to eventually, 
uh, is the sword of the spirit. But the rest of it is armor to protect us and to defend us against the attacks of the enemy. Why is that the case? Why is most of what Paul mentions here that which is defensive in nature rather than offensive? Well, I submit that once again, and we, I think, briefly noted this in the sermon last Lord's Day, but once again, I believe Paul is emphasizing this amazing truth that Jesus has already won the territory. He's already conquered every space upon this earth belongs to Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. He's Lord of our lives. He's Lord of our families. He's Lord of this church. He's Lord of this nation. He's Lord of the nations of this world. He is Lord of all. He doesn't go, tell us to go forth, therefore, to conquer new territory, but to defend and to stand faithfully for the territory he has already won. And that's why I suggest that nearly all of the armor that is given to us to fight against the enemy is defensive in nature rather than offensive. And second point that I would give to you by way of observation as we begin to approach the text before us and specifically the belt of truth is this, that as Paul focuses on the soldier's armor, why does he first focus upon the belt, the belt of truth? Why is it that he begins there? You know, that seems far less important than, you know, the breastplate of righteousness or the helmet of salvation or the shield of faith. Why does he begin with the belt of truth? and specifically the belt itself. Well, I think if we understand a little about how the Roman soldier placed upon him the armor, that we would understand that the belt was that which held everything else in place. The breastplate will fall off. The breastplate will be shifting uh, the, that which is for protection below the belt will likewise not be secure. It's the belt that holds everything in place. It's the belt that holds the scabbard in which the sword is placed. The belt is not some unimportant piece uh, just for ornamental uh, observation. It had a very practical an important uh, use in holding together uh, all of the armor that the soldier wore.
to lose the belt was in effect to render everything else very, very unstable. And so the belt of truth. And why does the Apostle Paul then compare the, the belt to truth? Because it's truth that holds all of the armor, all of the other pieces of armor in place. It's God's truth. Without the truth, nothing else will matter. Without the truth of Jesus Christ, we have no basis really to fight against the enemy. What are we going to fight with if we don't fight with the truth? It will simply be his lies against our lies, and he's far more experienced than his lies, and he will overrun us if we don't have the truth of Jesus Christ. If that's not foremost in this war, in this battle against the enemy. We know that the enemy is a liar. Jesus told us that. And without the truth, we simply fight against the enemy. Lies on our part against his lies. Not the truth against his lies. There are two aspects as we consider the belt of truth. There are two aspects of truth that we should briefly address. First aspect is objective truth. And the second is subjective application of the truth. So let's consider first objective truth. Objective truth is that which is outside of ourselves. Uh, it, it's truth that is found in the God of truth who cannot lie and who has revealed his truth in creation, in nature, and has revealed his truth to his prophets by way of special revelation, particularly in the Holy Scriptures. You see, we need to understand objectively concerning truth that God himself is the source of all truth. There's no truth outside of God. Anything outside of God that proposes to be truth is a lie. If it does, it's not agreeable to what God says, uh, it's, it's a lie. God has never learned a truth. He's never learned a truth. He has always been truth. He not only reveals truth, he is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And he is absolute truth. We see again by way of God's revelation how he reveals his truth in both creation and in scripture. Psalm 19. First, the revelation in nature, in creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out throughout all the earth, and their words 
to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. That's, again, God's revelation by way of creation, which declares his glory, which declares that he is the creator of all things. But then there is the revelation in Scripture, in verse 7 and following. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. See, dear ones, God's truth is not relative. It's absolute. God's truth is not changeable. It's immutable. God's truth... Uh, is not founded upon our mere personal or societal opinions. God's truth is not based upon some mere theory of man. God's truth, again, is absolute. We live, we live in an age in which people claim to have their own truth. As if truth is merely subjective and personal to them. But dear ones, this is an idea that has been inspired by the devil himself so as to mislead people from the God of truth, whose truth is absolute. You see, people do not want an absolute God. They do not want a sovereign God. They do not want a holy God. They do not want an absolute truth. They want their own truth, just like they want their own God. And when they want their own truth, they're saying, in effect, they are themselves their own God. But that's how the enemy has misled and does continue to mislead people today by way of this relative view of truth. It is basically, dear ones, to live in a land of contradictions. You see, my truth contradicts your truth, your truth contradicts my truth, and everyone else's truth contradicts everyone else's truth because it's not the same truth. And that's the land in which we live, a land of contradictions. If a male thinks that he's a female, well, that's his truth, according to this idea of relative truth. Truth is what we think it is, according to this view, no matter how foolish or rebellious it may be. For example, again, illustrations... Uh, this truth that parents have no rights over their children. Or the truth that babies 
in the womb are not persons, but are just like an appendage, like an arm, like a hand, uh, like a foot or a finger or something like that, just an appendage within the woman that the woman can simply choose to remove uh, by way of abortion. Relativism, namely truth is what you want it to be, that philosophy of relativism, will indeed lead to skepticism, that we can't truly then know the truth. This is also sadly a problem within the church. When it comes to doctrine, when it comes to worship, when it comes to church government, when it comes to ethical standards that God has given to us in his word, where we say or we imply that someone's position may be right for them, that may be their truth, but that's not mine. We're giving in to relativism. God is not schizophrenic when it comes to the truth. God has one truth because he is one God. Truth doesn't contradict itself. Now, we can certainly engage in discussion with fellow Christians over what is the truth, but let us not fall into the trap of that relativism, thinking that they can have the truth and I can have the truth, though we take entirely different positions with regard to a particular statement, a doctrine, a practice in worship. If we start there, relativism, there is no hope for true unity in the truth. And that is, again, relativism, and it leads ultimately to skepticism, that no one can know for sure what is God's truth. And that denies very clearly the God of truth. That denies revelation of truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for, for reproof, for correction, for our own edification and growth in Jesus Christ. Dear ones, we must be, as we consider this objective nature of truth and the belt of truth that we must wear and we must affirm, we must be firmly grounded. If we're going to do battle against the enemy, he will mislead us, he will deceive us, he will take us down different paths if we are not firmly grounded in the truth of God as it's found in scripture and as it is summarized in faithful confessions of faith and catechisms and covenants will be no match to an enemy who will take us and will wrap us around like a pretzel if we are not firmly grounded in his truth. We must be students of the word not merely reading the word and placing the Bible back in, into a safe place in our, in our bookshelf and forgetting about what we've just read or not applying what we've just read. 
we must be students of his word. Not merely of those foundational truths. Those are, those are important, obviously, most important, foundational truths that pertain to our salvation very specifically. But we must be those who are growing, growing in the truth, because God has certainly revealed more in his word than simply how to be saved. He's given to us so much more, and he wants us to be earnest, diligent, faithful students of his word and his truth. Otherwise, again, as I said, we'll be fighting the live Satan with our own lies. When we'll lose every time, as did Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, when Satan said, uh, Hath God said that if you eat of the tree that you shall surely die? And she said, when he began to question that, she said, as you recall, that God had said we shall not eat of the tree nor touch it. She added something that God never said. She added her own commandment. She's already moving away from the truth which God has given unto her because of the deception and the cunning temptation of the enemy. She should have said, uh, uh, again, founded upon the truth, yes, God has said that we will die if we eat of this, truth, uh, of this tree. We'll be deceived and misled, dear ones, by the enemy to the degree that we are not firmly grounded in the truth of God revealed in Scripture. Dear ones, none of the other armor is going to hold its place where it should be. We are going to look at if the belt of truth doesn't secure it. And in times of great sorrow, times of great sorrow, I dare say to you, it's the truth of God that brings comfort. It's the promises of God that cannot lie or mislead us, that bring to us the greatest encouragement and peace and comfort. That's where we find our comfort, even upon our own deathbed, is in the absolute truth and promise of God. There isn't comfort anywhere else but in the truth of the Lord. As we even prepare for the time that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, let us learn now. That's where our comfort comes from, from the objective truth of God that's unalterable, unchangeable. It's his truth and promises that sustain us. But there's also the subjective application of the truth. Not only the objective truth, but the subjective application. That's the personal part on our parts. We must know the truth objectively, but we must also practice the truth as well and stand for the truth as we speak the truth in love. To know the truth and not to stand for the truth out of love for God 
and for our neighbor is to use the truth as a mere ornament that we place upon the mantle rather than as a tool that we use daily in our fight against the enemy. Holding on to the truth by faith is especially important when the devil would tempt you to trust in your feelings rather than trust in what he has revealed. Our feelings will come and go. God has given to us feelings and emotions. Yes, that's part of our nature. But we cannot allow our feelings to lead us. It's his truth that must lead us. Because the enemy will deceive us by suggesting to us certain emotional responses to various things in our life that are contrary to his word, contrary to his truth. Let us always remember in our use of the truth as well, the subjective application of the truth, let us all remember in our use of the truth to be patient, to be patient with the ignorant and weak, but to be direct with the obstinate and the rebellious. And in all cases, in all cases, to be uncompromising because it's not our truth. It's God's truth. The truth, dear ones, when genuinely learned and applied in our life, is not going to make us proud or arrogant. When we truly learn the truth, it has the effect of humbling us before God and before one another, not exalting ourselves, but humbling ourselves. Because again, it's not our truth. It's God's truth for which we stand. When we have learned the truth, we should want, obviously, to defend the truth. But at the same time, we should not go forth in arrogance, picking fights with family members or with friends or with co-workers. That's not the way, again, truth humbles us. We don't go looking to pick fights. But at the same time, we must understand that love does not replace the truth. It's not an either or. We either loving or we are truthful or we speak the truth. But we are to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 And then finally, the second piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians 6 verse 14 and having on the breastplate of righteousness this part of the armor covers the front, the chest and at times wrapped around and connected at the side but wrapped around and covered the back as well 
it covered the vital organs uh, of the soldier. The breastplate of righteousness did, or the breastplate did. To be without this piece of armor left the soldier so very vulnerable to injury, to harm, to danger. This piece of armor was usually made of, of metal of some kind, uh, but not, at least not by the Romans, not usually one single piece, but various pieces that were uh, bound together by way of leather uh, or by way of some type of a wire that bound them together uh, so that there was more movability, uh, able to move to the right or to the left, not so confined, whether to go forward or to go backward, uh, more freedom of movement with regard to uh, this breastplate. As with truth, so with righteousness, there is an objective side to righteousness and there is also a subjective side to righteousness. Both are very, very important in our battle against the enemy. The objective part of righteousness, that, that is a righteousness outside of ourselves. It is, again, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we which he lived, which he practiced in perfect obedience to all of God's law and all of God's commandments, never having failed to keep God's law in his thoughts, his words, or his deeds from the time of his infancy to the time he ascended into heaven. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, dear ones, is imputed or credited to our account before God by faith alone, so that God then looking upon us as clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, declares us to be righteous, as righteous as Jesus himself is. Not because we have become inwardly perfect and sinless, but because that's how he accounts us in imputing to us, crediting to our account in the heavenly courts of heaven, that righteousness, so that he declares us to be righteous in his sight. Not less righteous than Jesus, but righteous as Jesus, because the righteousness that is imputed to us and credited to us is the righteousness of Jesus, which he, which he perfectly kept in blamelessly keeping all of God's law, not failing in any respect. 
That's the basis of our justification, being declared righteous before God. It says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him Jesus, that is, God the Father hath made him Jesus to be sin for us. When our sins were, were imputed and credited to his account, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, dear ones, when the enemy would cast his spear or thrust his sword at us in condemning us, in accusing us, in discouraging us, when we fail, when we falter, when we sin... How important it is in this battle, in resisting the enemy, that we have this breastplate of righteousness in place upheld by the belt of truth. Romans 8, 33-34, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's the objective nature of righteousness but there's also again the subjective part of righteousness and this is again subjective meaning personal experiential this is the living out in our daily lives god's righteousness that are that is found in his holy commandments not for our justification but for our sanctification and growth in jesus christ this righteousness, this subjective righteousness, is rooted in our love for God and for our neighbor. Because we love God, we keep his commandments. Because we love our neighbor, we do not do them ill. But fulfill, again, our God's commandments toward our neighbor. This subjective righteousness is, is not a begrudging duty on our parts to keep his commandments, but rather a loving duty. When God changes our heart, the keeping of God's commandments is no longer a chore. It is a delight to the child of God. It's one of the evidences that we have indeed been born again because we delight to keep his commandments. Not that it's easy to keep his commandments, but in our heart of hearts, we want to keep his commandments. Even when we're weak, even when we fall, we hate the fact that we've sinned. We hate the fact that we have broken his commandments because we love him because he first loved us. It's a loving duty. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
And I dare say to you, dear ones, we are even keeping God's commandments when we fall and when we do not remain in that fallen condition. We keep God's commandments by getting up again by faith. Getting up again and trusting in the Lord. Getting up again by way of true repentance from our sin, looking to the mercy of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Rather than remaining under the burden of that guilt, remaining under some burden of condemnation, but getting up again. That's keeping God's commandments as well. It's not an indication of true repentance to remain under the guilt and burden of sin that we have committed. That's not repentance, remaining under that guilt and that heavy burden. That actually can become more of a works righteousness that the longer we remain under that sense and burden of guilt and condemnation, the more acceptable that one might think he is before God because he's, he's basically gone through a kind of purgatory here upon the earth. But dear ones, it is true repentance in obeying God when we depart from our sin when we cast ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus and when we walk in loving obedience renew our, our commitment and our covenant with him to walk in loving obedience to his commandments we should mourn over sin but we should also be comforted by the mercy and grace of God Jesus says in the Beatitudes blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted mourning and grieving over sin is not an end in itself it is a means to the end of being comforted by the promises by the mercy by the love, by the grace of God and his forgiveness. So, dear ones, we neither excuse our sin because we have the fruit of righteousness within us uh, because, again, the Lord has sown and planted within us his righteousness when we are born again. But we don't excuse our sins simply because that righteousness has been implanted within us, nor do we go to the other ex extreme and wallow in sin for the same reason. With the breastplate of righteousness, which Jesus has purchased for us, we seek by our loving obedience to God's commandments to maintain a clear conscience before God, and before our fellow man. That subjective part of the breastplate of righteousness is so very important 
because the enemy does not have a foothold upon us or a place to wage war against us when we have, again, the breastplate of righteousness. When we have a clear conscience before God and before our fellow man, the accusations against us fall upon the ground. They have no weight. They have no attack. They do not penetrate the breastplate of righteousness. And so, again, the importance of both the righteousness of Christ, that objective righteousness imputed to us, and the subjective righteousness in living out in our lives the righteousness of God, which is basically saying that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, growing, growing daily to be more and more like our righteous and our holy Jesus, our blessed Jesus, our precious Jesus. And that comes through spending time with Jesus, spending time in his word, praying. That's how, again, that breastplate of righteousness becomes strengthened, and that's how we wear it in our battle against the enemy. Jesus, once again in the Beatitudes, says, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you, do I, hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness to be manifested in our lives? Because the Lord promises that if we do hunger and thirst, if that's what we're praying for, Lord, make me more like Jesus. Help me to love, to keep thy commandments. Let me not bring disgrace and dishonor and shame upon thy holy name. When we do so, Jesus promises that we will be filled with his righteousness. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the armor which Jesus has purchased for us to war, to fight against the enemy. The belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Father, may we meditate and reflect upon these pieces of armor. Lord, they are a part of our inheritance in Christ. It is not as though we have to go out and purchase these pieces of armor. They're already ours. We just need to wear them. We need to put them on daily. We pray, Father, that thou would give to us thy grace to do so, that we would know and be assured that because Jesus is victorious, so will we be victorious over all of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. For we thank thee in Jesus' name. Amen.